Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast Over Coffee. My guest today is Mohit Satyanand. Mohit is an entrepreneur and investor among many many other things. He founded several successful companies including the major snack food brand Cracks and Teamwork Arts which produces prestigious art festivals including the Jaipur Literature Festival. He is a consultant and policy expert who is chairman of the board of trustees of the think tank Liberty Institute. Mohit has a strong interest in education and macroeconomics policy. He is an avid mountain lover and lifelong trekker, bicycling enthusiast and an actor. I can go on and on about him for hours so let me take a pause and get into the conversation. Hi Mohit, welcome to the podcast. Thanks Pala, good to be here. Yeah. uh so while researching for this podcast uh, i was in something called that i would like to call the ajesha conundrum <laughs> because there was so much to unpack um you are an angel investor you are an entrepreneur you are a coach you are a mentor and you also have received acting credits for <laughs> for a few web series um that was that was very interesting to see um the the first time i heard about you was uh, through uh, teamwork arts and um i found out that you know your company is behind uh, running the jaipur literary festival uh, and very recently i listened to your episode on the scene and the unseen about your travel um, to bihar and um, i was really fascinated by uh, the wealth of experience uh, that you have in uh, in a lot of fields and i thought it it will be ideal that that you come on the show um it comes with age bala <laughs> <laughs> yeah but then uh, you know it's not just age but about people wanting to try different things um and uh, i think that's one of the things that that fascinates me about you um i was looking you up and i um i realized that your college days coincided with emergency uh and it reminds me of the movie hazaro khwahishe asi um how was that like and and you were in delhi at the time so uh, i would love to know more about how times were like it was quite chilling uh because uh, also one was coming of age at that point in time so your uh, your both very um impressionable uh which is on the youth side of it and uh also very quick to react which is sort of the adult uh, side of it so both of those you know when i say react i mean intellectually and uh, as you said being in delhi and uh, therefore you were surrounded by uh people of the next generation so i'm talking about my parents generation people who were senior in the media people who were senior in uh, the government services and the diplomatic services and it was really chilling to know i mean you could hear that uh, change in the tone on the phone when your phone was being tapped uh here i was just talking to an aunt you know just a nephew talking to an aunt but she was a senior diplomat and her phone was tapped i mean it was very clear and uh, then the uh, the debate that was going on in the media about whether it's better to come out 
auto shut down. So you had media which had all manner of responses, some which continued as though uh, nothing had changed, some which when a piece was censored, carried a blank space on their uh, uh, on the front page, and some which said, look, as long as the emergency is on, we're going to shut down. So you had all three manner of uh, responses. It was, and there were all manner of people who were thrown in jail. So it was very, very chilling. And uh, on the political side, what happened was that I think it uh, exploded once and for all this notion that there is no alternative, the Tina factor, as it is called. Because um, uh, when Indira Gandhi decided to hold elections again, uh, and that's a fascinating subject also worth exploring why she decided to hold uh, elections. The question was, but you know, who else is there? And there was this ragtag party. It was, it was a ragtag coalition, which came together and uh, threw together a manifesto in a matter of weeks. In fact, it's very interesting that the economic part of the manifesto was crafted right literally under my nose because it was crafted in the Delhi School of Economics in consultation with my professors, one of whom I was very close to, and therefore one got a great sense of uh, what the thinking was, of course, it was incredibly socialist thinking. Um, you know, you couldn't have expected uh, anything but. And what was also fascinating was that this particular professor uh, was, of course, very left-wing, but he was also a great aesthete and a follower of cinema and literature and so on and so forth. So I remember on at least two occasions being literally dragged out of the corridor and into his room because he suddenly had this insight as to how, uh, into the fact that I should see, for example, Cabaret, uh, which was a film about uh, uh, Germany under the Third Reich. You know? So it was a very fascinating time intellectually. I think the highlight for me was that the, I think it was probably the first major election speech of the new, uh, uh, Janta coalition that was held literally 100 meters from the front gate of my institution, the Delhi School of Economics. I was doing my MA then uh, by Atal Bihari Vajpayee. And it was a speech that just said to your spirits soaring because he had that ability to, to reach out. It was oratory of an extremely high order. And uh, it was just a coincidence that uh, 1977 was also when I turned 21. And uh, it was the first time I cast my vote. And I was able to very, very uh, affirmatively cast my vote against the emergency and the fascist tendencies of, uh, of Indira Gandhi. So it was a time of great change. It was a great time to become uh, a political actor in the in in the minimal in the most minimal form in which a citizen is a political actor by being incentivized to go out and vote. Yeah, I remember. Uh, uh, I mean, it was obviously many years later that um, uh, I saw a picture of Hindu um, from from the emergency, and they put up a blank editorial page. Uh, 
to to protest against the emergency. Um, so this change happened one fine day. That one fine day, everything was normal, and then the very next day, everything was just different. No, 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 no. no it was coming for a long time. Um, so my political awareness is very limited, and. Uh, even now when it comes to shifts in political parties and what's happening at the regional level and so on and so forth, it's not my preferred uh, area of interest. But uh, there were a lot of stirrings happening. There was, uh, uh, it basically all began with the uh, Jayaprakash Narayan uh, movement in Bihar and uh, call for uh, Sampoorn uh, Kranti, total revolution. And uh, this was certainly making uh, people like Indira Gandhi extremely insecure. And uh, so I think that sort of reactionary uh, tendency was already beginning. And uh, for her, the last straw was when this um, uh, court order came against her misusing um, the... Um, perquisites of the prime minister to be campaigning. And that's when she decided enough was enough and uh, imposed uh, the emergency. So you could say it was a reaction to that one court order, but you know that's 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 being really, really simplistic. Yeah. There was this background of acute disaffection in Bihar. So you could say that it began in Bihar. Yeah, I mean, uh, more than a political uh, standpoint, uh, with respect to just day-to-day -day activities, um, you know, there were a lot of limitations. There were there was like a curfew like situation. So, uh, did you did you feel like your no life no, and... I, I, no 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 I, at uh, at the personal at the day to day level as a student, it made absolutely no difference in lives zero. zero. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, we we had a call before this interview, and and you were telling me how. Uh, you you worked on the FMCG space uh, quite a bit. Uh, was this right after your graduation uh, from the Delhi School of Economics? Yeah. So after I finished my master's in uh, uh, economics from Delhi School, I joined Hindustan Lever, now called Hindustan Unilever, which was, uh, as it is now, the largest FMCG company in India. But more importantly, it was widely, almost, I would say, universally considered to have the best management training uh, program. I think and... it still does. Yeah, because it's uh, one of the top priorities of IM graduates these days, from what I understand. Right, yeah, right, right. So this was, of course, uh, 45 years ago, <laughs> 1977. Yeah. So, uh, so that was the attraction. The attraction was that. Um, without having done an MBA. And uh, there's a small backstory there as well. Uh, so I decided not to do an MBA in spite of getting admission to IM because I had very late in my undergrad developed a deep interest in economics. So I wanted to pursue that a little bit further, even though I was 95% sure that I wanted to have a career in management. So, you know, I kept both options alive for a while and, um, joined uh, Hindustan Lever as a management trainee in what was kind of a dual track program. So you followed more or less the same training, whether you were an IM graduate or not, except that your training period was two years if you didn't have a, an MBA and uh, uh, 18 months if you have an MBA. 
I thought that kind of difference was well worth those two years that I spent um, uh, learning about uh, economics. And uh, funnily now, this is the first time I've had this thought, which is the value of conversation, that um, I think um, my education in economics is much more valuable to me today than an education in management would have been. Because, because I think you learn about management being a manager, but I don't think I would have learned as much uh, about economics, which is now a deep passion for me uh, if I'd done an MBA. But Oh, that's a great uh, food for thought for future MBA aspirants to, is to um, learn about the economic side of things. Uh, one of the, one of the things that, uh, my friends who graduated from IAMs and went on to work for Unilever say is that uh, they get to travel a lot uh, while being part of Unilever and they get to learn about India. I think that's one of their major takeaways. Uh, and uh, turns out that people who are ex-Unilever, um, you know, employees go on to, uh, you know, uh, become uh, or, or do great things in life. Uh, that's That's been... That's been one thing. Uh, did you get to travel a lot while working for Unilever or uh, were you always so I, traveling? I, I, worked, I worked for Unilever only for four years. And um, so I got to travel very deeply rather than widely uh, because <clears throat> part of the training was that you, since your first job as somebody who joined what was then called the commercial stream, uh, was going to be as a sales manager. Therefore, you spent about five months altogether um, doing the work of the field-level people in uh, the sales system. So you worked for two months as, <clears throat> as what was then called a salesman. I'm sure there's a more dignified title for it now, but it was then called a salesman. And then you worked for two months as a sales supervisor who is one rung above. And um, you did that without any of the perquisites of a manager or a management trainee. So um, you used the same class of travel. You had the same um, allowances to live in hotels. You couldn't call them that. They were lodges. And I remember my sales manager the day before I was to launch on this um, two-month journey as a salesman told me, you know, many management trainees, especially those coming from um, well-to-do families, uh, stay in hotels which are way outside their uh, allowance because they figure that they have no other expenses and they can use their salary towards that. But that's partly defeating the purpose of this, which is to understand how the salesman lives and how he travels and so on and so forth. So um, I took that to heart, as I think 90% people do. So I think, you know, those who were an claiming to be holier than thou or anything like that. Uh, and I sat down with the salesman whom I was relieving for those two months and took detailed notes from him and stayed in every hotel and uh, ate at every restaurant at which he ate. And uh, this was in the territories of Lucknow and Gorakhpur. So central and east UP. 
So in a typical month, I would spend five or six days in Lucknow, which was, uh, of course, extremely comfortable. And the balance, uh, 21 days of a 28-day cycle, would be in towns like Azamgarh, Balia, Basti, Baharech, and the now famous Gorakhpur. And um, it was a revelation. It was a revelation to see how poor we were as a nation, even though one knew it intellectually as a student of economics, but what that actually meant uh, in terms of how people lived and what they ate. And the fact that even if you had money in your pocket, and even if I said, you know, my meal allowance is, let's say, I don't remember the numbers, 13 rupees for dinner, there were towns where you could not spend 13 rupees on dinner. Even if you wanted because to. Because the only, the only thing that was available was a dry roti and a really thin potato curry. There were some towns where even getting a proper dal was a luxury. And um, I remember staying in a town, I think it was uh, Azamgarh, where there was actually no hotel. And by hotel, I don't mean, you know, even an Oyo kind of hotel. I mean, a place where a traveler could pay 30 rupees for a room. There wasn't that. I stayed in a Gita Bhavan. And uh, um, I stayed on the first floor. The room next to mine had no roof. And it was winter. And there was no toilets on the first floor. I arrived there late at night. In the morning, I went looking for... Uh, a toilet. I won't tell you what I did at night before I went to bed. But in the morning, I went looking for a toilet. There was no electricity. And uh, the toilets were little less than a trough, like a cattle trough in an outhouse in the far end of the compound on the ground floor. And I remember another place where I was told, this was winter, I was told, look, the only place you can sleep in at night is the railway retiring room, which was fine. It was moderately comfortable, but there's no hot water. And if you want hot water to uh, to shave, then you should take a mug from the retiring room and go to the engine driver of the train that will go to whatever the nearest town is at eight o'clock and take hot water from the coal boiler in the engine, which is exactly what I did. <laughs> I walked to the steam engine and uh, got hot water from the boiler and brought it back. And as I was walking back, I noticed that there were black flecks on the surface of the water, which was coal dust. And uh, I shaved with that. And then when I washed with that, I realized that there were a few black streaks on my face. Uh, from the coal dust. So I then washed again with cold water. So yeah, it was quite an experience. Quite an experience. Yeah. Um, I mean, just just you talking about it is painting such a great picture. Uh, well, not so great picture uh, in some cases. Uh, how, how many states did you cover with Unilever and what years are we talking about? So I joined Unilever in uh, August of 77, and I did my training in UP and Punjab uh, over the rest of the year. 
so August to December. And I then moved to um, Pompeii. And uh, after various trainings in the factory and commercial and marketing, etc., I took on the job of area sales manager for the foods division in the Western Zone. Um, I can't remember exactly when, let's say about a year later, or mm-hmm. towards the end of uh, 78. And in that job as area sales manager, Foods West, I covered uh, Madhya Pradesh, Maharashtra, Gujarat, and Goa. Uh, But of course, now I was a manager, you know, so I was entitled to stay in three or four star hotels and uh, traveled by car, uh, not uh, I didn't have to stay in retiring rooms, and um, it also meant that you know if there was a small town which you wanted to cover, you didn't spend the night in that town. You you were in your car and you drove that car a hundred kilometers and visited the distributor and you went to the nearest big town which had a decent hotel and a decent restaurant and so on. So life was completely different from what it was for those first four or five months. But it was nevertheless uh, quite an education. And I think during that trip, um, there were three experiences, which um, travel experiences, which I remember very, very clearly. The first was uh, visiting the Bhilai, Raipur Bhilai Korba belt. and uh, seeing what one had read about as a student of economics, which is uh, heavy industry, uh, huge steel plants, huge coal plants, uh, mining, etc., and how they had, uh, uh, these were all public sector undertakings, which were set up in the case of the live steel plant with collaboration with the Russians. So one saw how that whole thing happened you know, how that technology was imported, and you could even see how the architecture was imported, you know, it was brutal Russian-style architecture. So that was a, that was something of in, insight. In an adjacent area, I visited uh, Bastar, which was, which was then part of, um, which was then part of uh, Madhya Pradesh, now, of course, it's a separate state, uh, the state of uh, Chhattisgarh. But um, I saw a tribal India, and uh, it was a different world. There was um, there was something quite uh, there was something quite romantic about it. You know, I think urban people are prone to romanticizing the tribal life, and uh, I know that it carries a very very deep burden of uh, poverty and uncertainty and so on and so forth. But yet to the aesthete, there is a romanticism in it, that closeness to nature, the the depth of the forest, uh, people walking long kilometers to get to the market, the market having all kinds of very, very primitive produce, fowls and vegetables and so on and so forth, and a certain amount of primitive art. Uh, It was to the aesthetic, it was profoundly appealing. You know uh, what it means in reality. I know because subsequent periods in my life, I've traveled in the tribal areas, 
as somebody working with NGOs and trying to understand the kind of services that these people are getting, their economic situation and so on. That's that's really, really that's a different story. But at that point in time, to this impressionable young man of 22, there was, there was a certain romantic uh, beauty uh, to it. Um, and the third was a visit to Goa. It was my first visit to Goa. Uh, I don't think there's uh, any person from our kind of uh, socioeconomic background who doesn't go to Goa every year or every couple of years. And I'm certainly guilty of that. But at that point in time, you know, again, talking about 78, um, Goa had not been liberated for too long from uh, Portugal. And uh, there was something exotic about Goa. It still had that Portuguese influence. And I remember the hotel I stayed in, which still carried very, very um, um, stark swatches of paint from the Portuguese era. Some of the notices were in Portuguese. The food was, um, the menu had both English and Portuguese in it. And uh, some of our dealers still had the Portuguese names and um, all of Goa went to sleep between one o'clock and four o'clock, you know, the South European siesta. So I, if I was out working in the market with my uh, salespeople, we would start at whatever it was, 9.30 or 10, and then um, go and have lunch from 1 to 2 or 2.30, and I would uh, uh, I would actually go to the beach and I would swim. Uh, but uh, we would then meet again at quarter to four or four, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not very important in terms of understanding India, but it just left a very deep impression on me. This, 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 there, there can be this little enclave of, um, of Europe, which is just an hour's flight away uh, from Bombay. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, it, it, you know, you touched upon the tribal landscape in Chhattisgarh, I mean, the now Chhattisgarh, uh, erstwhile, Madhya, well, not erstwhile, but like uh, Madhya Pradesh earlier. Um, you know, I have this thought uh, about preserving tribal culture and, uh, you know, letting tribals live the way they are uh, and so on. Um, I, I have this thought that, you know, even though preserving culture and traditions is really important, somehow we make them exotic but uh, we don't let them see or uh, enjoy the privileges of life that that we do um, and uh, for city dwellers and the privileged people privileged class um, they are always exotic we just visit them for three four days um, stay in an exotic uh, or, or fancy hotel uh, 50 kilometers away visit the tribal spot and come back and um what are your thoughts on that? Is it important to, you know, bring them to, I would, I'm just going to use the word civilization or uh, let them be. Uh, this is be... a very difficult discussion. Right, right. Um, well, I, that's not by way of saying that I don't want to get into it, but um, I think the particular is very uh, different everywhere. So you can, Take an extreme example of the Jarawas in um, Andaman, 
who made it very clear, very violent and clear that they don't want anybody on their territory. And I think that's that. You know? uh, as a uh, as a nation, um, you are somewhere constitutionally respect the freedom of the individual and therefore of the community. And if the community decides that they don't want uh, anybody um, encroaching on their territory, so be it. But I think that's a very marginal discussion. To me, uh, you know, discussions about preserving culture, I, I that's a very top-down approach. I think culture is something which is uh, inherent to a people and uh, uh, what they choose to um, inhabit, what they choose to retain, what they choose to import, what they choose to expose themselves to. These are all very uh, deep individual stroke community. Uh, choices. So, you know, to take again a very, very uh, simplistic uh, example uh, is that of fusion music, you know. So, um, um, Dr. L. Subramaniam doesn't become less of a great Hindustan, a Karnataka classical uh, violinist by playing along with John McLaughlin. You know? And he informs John McLaughlin and John McLaughlin uh, um, influences him and then you throw in um, a Hindustani percussionist like Zakir Hussain and you know so that's a very 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 fertile ground whether or not you like the Mahavishnu orchestra that came out of it is a personal thing but what I'm saying is that um, uh, I think that's the way culture needs to be you know needs to be approached of like everything else I'm I'm fairly radical on this front it needs to be approached from a completely free and libertarian point of view. And these are individual choices. But coming back to tribals, I think the, the issue there is a much, much uh, deeper one and one which is um, at the heart of a lot of conversations which are happening today. And uh, there is the legal issue and there is the larger environmental issue. Um, so, and you could also frame a third question, which is the um, question of to whom does the land belong? Okay. So let's start with that. To whom does the land belong? So um, you could take one extreme position, which is that the sole occupants of large tracts of forest, hundreds of thousands of acres, for thousands of years were the tribals. And therefore, those forests belong to them. But uh, when the Brits came in, land was governed by the British law tradition, which is what is called res nullis, which means that if land doesn't belong specifically to any individual or institution, it belongs to the king, right? And therefore, by one stroke of the British um, uh, imperial um, court, all forest lands, except the, those which were privately owned, belonged to the king or queen of England. And then India became a free nation, but everything that belonged to the king now belonged to the government. And so the tribal lands all belonged to the government. Because these lands had never been cultivated, Therefore, they were of no revenue value. 
and therefore there was no title to this land. Agricultural land had revenue value and therefore the uh, British administration, the colonial administration, awarded pattas, they awarded title, and against that title they collected rent. They didn't do that in tribal areas. They valued the, the tribal forest land for its forest produce. And therefore, so now when India became independent and uh, uh, all the pattas passed from the, from the colonial administration to the administration of the Republic of India, the forest dwellers had no rights in their land. And they were always at the mercy of they were always at the mercy of the uh, forest department. And uh, this then started becoming an issue. And uh, it was fought, as always, by activists. And in this particular case, largely by two sets of activists who were working in parallel without really knowing each other, one in Gujarat and one in Maharashtra. And... Uh, uh, Maharashtra was an incredible uh, Jesuit priest who gave up his uh, priesthood in order to work with the tribals. Um, a gentleman whom I had the tremendous privilege of knowing quite well, called Pradeep Prabhu, and he took up the case of tribals in the Thane district and argued the case himself through the um, uh, Maharashtra High Court and then the Supreme Court. And there was another group of people working with tribals in the Baruch district of Gujarat. And uh, eventually, firstly, the case was won in the Supreme Court that tribal, uh, that forest dwellers need to be given uh, rights to the land which they have cultivated. And then realizing that the game was up in a sense, a Forest Rights Act was enacted in the Parliament. Uh, without going into the details of it, it said that if you could prove that you had been farming this land for X number of years, you could get a patta of, but only of up to five acres. Okay. At least it was the beginning. Because firstly, it recognized that they were the rightful owners of that land. B, along with ownership of land, your access to other rights also becomes a lot easier. You know, your, um, your title to the house in which you live and the general respect that you get in the community by being not landless, but an owner of land changes. But the pace at which the Forest Rights Act was actually enforced and the kind of trouble that tribals had in getting their land rights recognized and getting that patta, it's just incredible. Because there's no real political or administrative way uh, to do it. I don't know the latest figures, but I worked quite closely with this group in Gujarat uh, for a few years, uh, helping raise money and awareness and uh, helping them with adopting GIS technology uh, to actually map the land and submit the pattas. And uh, 
so on and so forth. So I think more than more than the cultural issues, I think it's the economic issues which uh, need to be sorted. And I forget exactly when the Forest Rights Act was enacted. I think it was 2004, 2005. It's getting on to 20 years now. And uh, we're still nowhere near universal recognition of these land numbers. Um, I suspect it's somewhere around the 40, 50%. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. I thought I knew the areas that you were an expert in, but it turns out that you have worked with um you know uh so many different things uh as no, I... i'm not an expert in this at all bala it's just something that caught my uh, no no not active human side of me and i got involved for a while yeah yeah but but it's great that you did um yeah <laughs> coming back to india pre-1991 um when you when you were traveling as a part of hindustan lever and and uh beyond uh beyond lever did you see a stark difference in the north-south uh, states um, back in those days? Because India was fairly uniform from what I have read. Um, was a UP similar in economic conditions with a Maharashtra or an Andhra Pradesh? Uh, what was your experience like? Actually, the biggest difference that I could see in my limited exposure was between um, Punjab and UP. They were, they were, I, and the fact is that Punjab was the richest state in the country at that point in time. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and uh, UP was not the poorest, but was among the poorest, you know, Bihar was always uh, uh, worse off than, so that difference was very, very stark. Um, rural Maharashtra was very poor, uh, as was tribal and uh, rural. Madhya Pradesh. So, um, uh, but as I said, the conditions were different, you know. The way in which I traveled in rural Maharashtra was very different from the way in which I traveled in rural UP. So I felt the poverty of rural UP much more than I did in Maharashtra. But I would say it was worse. I would say even then, uh, especially Eastern UP, was just incredibly poor. It was really dirt uh, work. And in comparison, at that point in time, um, Punjab literally did feel like the land of Mekana. You know, there was, there was, everything was green and there really was milk wherever you went and, uh, and sugarcane. And for me also, it was sort of, you know, uh, even though I didn't grow up in Punjab, our family was or is Punjabi by my blood, and uh, it was it was just nice to be in that environment and to speak that language and be part of it. So, you know, um, I think the the kind of north south divide that uh, now exists in terms of um, uh, both economic and uh, social progress, that didn't exist then. And during that time, I was also, I hardly traveled in the four southern states. Uh, all my travel was either north or west. And there was not a big divide. Mm. It was Punjab that stood right on top of uh, Yeah. 
many years later, uh, did you get a chance to uh, visit Eastern UP? And did you see any difference? The reason why I'm saying this is, um, you know, I went uh, for an undergraduate degree in NIT Jamshedpur, and I'm originally from Kerala. And what was really fascinating was uh, I was taking a lot of things that I had in Kerala for granted until I visited Jamshedpur. Uh, I did grow up for a bit in Calcutta, but then Calcutta is a city, so uh, it's quite different. But, uh, you know, apart from Jamshedpur, which was a significant level up from the rest of Jharkhand, um, I, I did get an opportunity to go to uh, other cities in Jharkhand. So what I noticed was, um, you know, this is like 2000, uh, 2010 and 2011. What I noticed was if you take off mobile shops, uh, shops that sell SIM cards, um, it was still in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, the buses were from the 1970s. The uh, the trucks were from the 1970s. Some of the roads were uh, from the 1970s. So uh, it was quite a revelation for me. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and and it's it's. So I haven't been I haven't been back to Eastern UP, but over the last uh, three years, um, two places where I've been. Uh, one is as you talked about earlier on was Bihar, and um, you know I spent five or six days in Bihar, and we uh, actually stayed in very small uh, towns. Two towns, one was Saharsa and one was Purnia. And these are both in the northeastern part of uh, Bihar. And there was a map out recently, which shows um, multidimensional poverty. And uh, both of these districts that we were in have the probably the highest incidence of multidimensional poverty in India, around 50% of the population. And you could see it. And... Um, so I walked around the town of Saharsa with uh, my friend, the economist uh, Kumar Anand, whose family uh, is from Saharsa, and we stayed in his parents' house. And this was the question which I asked him, how much had changed? And so we did a, you know, the same kind of inventory as you're talking about. And uh, um, yeah, if you remove the shop selling SIM cards, there was nothing much else that was different except for one thing, which was that the um, there was a public garden which was attached to the, um, I think, the municipal offices. And two-thirds of that garden had been given on long-term rent to entrepreneurs who were running... Um, banquet halls for weddings. And uh, so they'd become sort of Bharat um, gardens, if you were. And uh, <laughs> the decor there, you know, that very kitschy decor and uh, blend of artificial and real flowers and um, so on, that could have been from, that could have been from any big city, you know? Uh, from the poorer part of a big city. Um, and the third thing which was new, which I hadn't seen in the 70s and 80s, was beauty parlors. 
beauty parlors are ubiquitous in India. They didn't exist 40 or 50 years ago. So I think uh, these are the three big changes. Um, uh, shop selling mobile phones and uh, SIM cards, the, the marriage halls, and beauty parlors. And now we are in uh, 2023, and um, uh, I just want to uh, quote Shashi Tarud here, that uh, for every rupee UP gives in tax, it receives 1.79 rupee back. Uh, Tamil Nadu apparently puts a rupee and gets 30 to 35 paise back. Um, and Bihar is four rupees. Bihar is almost four rupees, three something. Four rupees. Uh, yeah, you know one one of the one of the first times that this really struck me was um, I I don't remember the year, but Mamta Banerjee was presenting the budget, and um, uh, we had a minister from Kerala who was the minister of state for railways, um, and there was a huge demand for trains in Kerala. Uh, like you know, definitely the Kochi Bangalore route was uh, uh, was one of the most popular ones, and you know we wish that there were more trains in that uh, in that route. What happened was the number of trains that UP and West Bengal got, uh, and these were the years when Mamta Banerjee was the railway minister, and then uh, Lalu Prasad Yadav was the railway minister, or you know the other way around. Everything was, you know, Howrah Nagpur. Howda Bangalore, Howda. Um, so, what I'm trying to say is, there is so much of investment in uh, in Bihar and UP. Um, uh, I, I don't know if this is the right investment. You know, adding more trains uh, and so on. But where do you think the gap might be? Uh, you know, when the center gives, uh, like you said, four rupees to Bihar, it's just not getting invested properly, or uh, where? Where is the gap? So I, I think there are there are two ways to look at this. I think the first thing is to pull up a map which shows population density. And when you see the enormous population density along this sort of arc, which goes from Delhi, literally following the Ganga, uh, through uh, UP, Bihar, and eventually to West Bengal. And um, if you actually drive through West Bengal, um, there are parts of West Bengal where the population density is even higher than in Bihar. Uh, so the fact that you need that kind of um, uh, infrastructure to service those kind of populations, I think that's a given. Um, the, Second issue is, what does it mean to be a nation? Now, if you look at, if you look at the US, for example, the gap in per capita income between the poorest state and the richest state is about two is to one. So the poorest states, which are in the Northeast, Massachusetts, um, uh, uh, New York, uh, they're all in the sixty-seven dollars to $70,000 a year range. And if you look at the poorest states there in the South, uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, um, I don't remember the exact figures, but they are in the low 30s. Gap is about 2.2 to 0.3 is to 1. 
Now in India, and that's what led me to Bihar, the per capita income of Bihar is $640 per annum. Uh, that's a crazy number, even in absolute terms. And this is uh, this is the arithmetic mean, right? Uh, so somebody who is numerate, you know that if you have an unequal distribution, then if the mean is 640, the median is probably 400. Uh, so um, a very, very large number of rural Biharis will be living on $400 per capita per, per year, which is a which is a staggering number. Um, in all of Asia, there are only four countries with a per capita income of less than $1,000. And they are Yemen, which is war-torn, Syria, which is war-torn, Afghanistan, which was torn apart by war for decades, and North Korea because we don't know what the per capita income there is. So it's quite staggering that a state of 130 million people in this country, which wants to call itself the fastest growing nation in the world, et cetera, et cetera, uh, should actually have a per capita income, which is at the bottom of any pile that you construct, whether it's in Asia, whether it's in the world, whatever it is. On the other side, you have um, Goa, which has a per capita income of about $7,000. The gap is like more than 10 is to one. And you can exclude Goa, say it's a small state, and state, you know, Karnataka or Tamil Nadu, which are like 5,000. Anyway, the point is that these are factors of 7, 8, 10, 12 times. As a national leader, wouldn't you like to equalize this number? You know, uh, wouldn't you like to bring the experience of being Indian sort of more uh, towards the center? If you believe that leadership can influence the economic well-being of people. And uh, unfortunately, economics is a very complex subject. And economic policy is even more complex in a federal union, uh, what is the state that the, that the central or the union government can play? What is the role that um, uh, state governments can play? How much of state politics is defeating economics? These are all very, very relevant questions and questions that I came up hard against when I traveled in uh, Bihar. You could say that a lot of the policies in Bihar are self-defeating and are going to result in it continuing to be at the bottom of the pile. But, um, but if you are a union of states, uh, then part of your economic goal has got to be to try and uh, lift the poorest parts of the nation. This doesn't prevent the political question coming from a Kerala or a Karnataka that uh, is that money that in a sense, is going out of our pockets to Bihar, is that being well spent? That's equally a legitimate question. And I'd be the first person to ask that question on behalf, not just of those who are living in Kerala and uh, Karnataka, but also as someone who, in his personal capacity, pays a lot of tax. You know? Is that money being well spent? It's a question that I would ask 
at the level of the union government uh, is inaugurating two uh, convention centers in Delhi, one costing 3,000 crores and one costing 5,400 crores in a week. Is that going to yield a return on our investment or not? And uh, does the Bihar government spend its money well or not? And these are all questions that all of us are entitled to ask. Not just from the perspective of a north-south divide, which is a very real divide, and is going to be increasingly um, uh, a question that cannot be solved. It cannot be solved over the next 10 or 20 years. The, um, uh, you know, what we've seen is um, the distance in both socioeconomic indicators and um, pure commercial ones, the distance between uh, a Bangalore and a Patna is only widening, it's not, it's not closing. And the distance between uh, Bangalore and Pune district is also <laughs> widening. It's not closing. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that uh, that you mentioned in in the podcast with with Amit Verma is uh, that you know none of those cities had a five star hotel and uh, Tata's Jinjan none, was there's only one city, only one yeah. city which which is Patna, and that too at that point in time when we were there, it um, did not have a five star. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I noted uh, while I was in in Jharkhand was um, the situation of youth. Um, so uh, when it comes to education, almost everybody just moves to Delhi. You know, if if they are they want to do a uh, you know an arts degree or a, or a philo philosophy degree, economics degree, uh, they just move to Delhi, and a lot of them write the West Bengal, uh, uh, West Bengal entrance exam for engineering, and I think there is some percentage uh, of quota for for people from Bihar and Jharkhand, and people who don't make it just come to Vellore or um, Bangalore for for their engineering degree. So, it looks like you know anyone who who graduates uh, the twelfth board exams uh, just moves out of state, and I think that's also the retention of youth is also a problem. Uh, no, 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 no. So, um, what you're saying is absolutely true, uh, but it represents probably point uh, one percent of. Uh, yeah, I have to agree because these are all the economically, you know, upper yeah. middle class. Yeah, I have to. Yeah. I have to no, agree. no, not upper middle class. Not upper upper class. Upper upper class. Upper, upper uh, because you define, you've got to define upper and middle and so on by the distribution, not by an absolute number. So people like this represent the top 0.1% of uh, Bihar. The, um, uh, you know, again, without getting too data heavy, and I don't remember the numbers offhand, but if you look at the progression of um, young people from primary school to secondary, from secondary to um, uh, college, um, it's true across this nation that now you have almost universal enrollment in uh, primary schools. But the progression to um, uh, secondary and then on to higher education, um, that whole chain, um, the drop-off and the thinning of that chain is sharpest in Bihar sharper than almost anywhere else uh, in this country. Um, and then the percentage of those who actually uh, graduate from college and look for higher education, whether uh, in um, 
whether in law or writing the UPSC exams or whatever, is again really, really, really minuscule. Um, the situation in Bihar is that, um, as you may remember from the podcast, within what greeted us as we checked into our budget business hotel, which was the only brand name hotel in uh, uh, Patna, was um, a group of young men. Strangely, there were no women, and I did try and ask about that, um, who had written and cleared the exam for uh, Bihar government school teachers, but they'd not got their appointment letters for four years. Um, so these were young and not so young men, uh, ranging from sort of 27, 28 to mid-30s, who'd never worked a day in their lives. Um, they had, in some cases, written the exam two or three times before clearing it. They prepared for the exam for a year or two. And now, four years later, even though they qualified, they'd not got their appointment letters. Um, Similarly, if you were to look at the Bihar, uh, whatever it's called, state services, you know, um, the state equivalent of the UPSC, um, again, those numbers are crazy. Um, four lakh people, eight lakh people register for the exams, four lakh write them, and the previous year, 280 people had got jobs you're talking of fractions of percent, you're not even talking uh, percentages. So that is the situation in Bihar, that um, the um, unemployment among the youth is is is, is pathetic. It's, it's really, really sad. Uh, it's also true that uh, those who are academically or intellectually ambitious, uh, do believe that their future lies outside. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a tough spot that Bihar is in now and hopefully uh, things change. Um, Mohit, uh, what, what fascinates me is uh, you started uh, one of India's, uh, or the first successful snack brand outside of the big, big corporations. Um, how was... How was the scenario uh, to to start a business pre nineteen ninety one versus post nineteen ninety one? And you know, I would love a first hand uh, narrative uh, uh, if you can. Yeah. So um, it was, you know, as somebody who'd grown up in the sixties and seventies, you took state control for granted. Um, you didn't question, you didn't question it. You railed against it, but you took it for granted. And um, you realized that if you wanted to do something, you've got to deal with the system. So there was never the kind of frustration and intellectual angst that I have with the license Raj today because it still persists. At that point in time, you just took it for granted. That was the way the world functioned, you know. And it was a world in which it took uh, seven years to get a phone and three years to get a motorcycle. And so, so you just lived with it. But um, I'll, the one thing that struck me is really, really, really comic. Okay? So um, there was this 
there was this technology for manufacturing snack foods, which is called extrusion technology. It was unknown in India. We didn't have a single extruded snacks plant at the time. And it was something that I found fascinating for the novelty of what it could produce and how it lent itself to intense flavoring and so on and so forth. And um, so that's what I settled upon. Um, and uh, this was a choice made after two separate trips and visiting not, not too few plants and manufacturers in Europe, the US and Southeast Asia. And having to educate myself about snack food processing, machinery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, today you would say, okay, uh, where do I find a young person who understands snack food uh, processing and uh, bring them on board and give them some equity? So, so forth, you know, at that point, then there was no such thing. You started from scratch, you educated yourself. And as a process of all of these visits and all of this reading and so on and so forth, uh, you decided that this is the machinery that I want to import, right? Um, but before you get in, so now you have to get an import license, okay? Anything that you wanted to bring in, there was an import license. Uh, now, the license was not just about um, getting the foreign exchange to bring in the plant. It was also the government in its all-knowing Vishnu-like avatar that decided whether you were bringing the appropriate technology from the appropriate manufacturer to make this. Now, there was a department called the Directorate General of Technical Development, which was the MyBAP when it came to deciding whether this was the plant that you should import. And um, the officer at the DGTD, he was a very nice man. I actually quite liked him. And his knowledge of technology was no more or no less than mine. In general, you know, I'm saying some people understand technology, some don't. Uh, I, despite having trained in economics, had some, had a scientific bent of mind. I could say that this guy had, a, you know, he understood technology at some very, very general level. But I don't think he was an IIT grad or anything. I think like me, he was, you know, commerce or whatever it is. Now, this gentleman was the arbiter of whether the snack food technology that I was bringing in as embodied in this plant was appropriate. He knew nothing about it. And there's no way that he was going to spend a year of his life trying to understand snack food. That's what I'd done, right? I had visited Thailand, Singapore, France, uh, UK, and four states in the US. I Italy, in fact, I finally bought the plant from Italy. And so basically, I gave him um, 
cyclostyled or whatever it was and photocopied pages of a couple of chapters from a book that was the Bible of extrusion technology. Um, the brochures of uh, this company from which I was importing that technology, which was a company called Market Bianti, and brochures of a couple of other companies which I had interacted with, showing why the Mappimpianti technology was better suited to what. And his job then became, for a consideration obviously, uh, his job became uh, to rehash all that I had given him into a report, which now sort of pretended that the DGTD understood extrusion technology and had therefore decided that we were making the right technological choices. Okay. So it was a farce of the highest order. And like I said, he was a basically a nice guy. And therefore it was not too fraught. But of course I was also very naive because uh, Every company, irrespective of how big or small it was, and I was doing this under the umbrella of um, um, of a company that uh, was into um, it had a flag, so it was processing wheat into iron. And so they had one very senior employee whose job was liaison. He was a liaison guy, and. Um, uh, so I said, no, no, you know, this gentleman is a very nice gentleman. So he looked at me like I was a child, which I was, you know. <laughs> I was all of um, uh, 26 or 27 then. And said, he may be very nice, but nothing is done for free. But even he was really rattled when he came back from negotiating with this guy. And... Uh, you know, I guess he had a sense of what gets paid for what kind of permission and what kind of license. And he came to me and he was he was literally blustering. He said, and I'll say it in Hindi and then translate. He said, In logon ke liye to tankha chakni ke barabar hai. Which means that the salary you get from the government is just the sauce on the side. The meat and the bread comes from entrepreneurs like you and me. So this was the reality then. And uh, two other colors to that reality. The first is that every time I traveled to look at machinery, to look at um, uh, markets, etc., 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 I had to get foreign exchange from the Reserve Bank of India. Couldn't buy a foreign exchange just like that. Hmm? A foreign exchange was a rare commodity. And to get foreign exchange from the Reserve Bank of India, the Delhi office of Reserve Bank of India had no permission. You had to apply to Reserve Bank of India in Bombay. So that means for every trip that I went, the same gentleman who looked after liaison had to first go to Bombay, spend three or four days there, get my application for foreign exchange processed. And that application for foreign exchange determined whether your daily allowance was $155 or $125 or $110, depending on your designation in the organization. <laughs> so he gets so, to decide, wow. No, no, there was, there, was a, there, was a, uh, there was a schedule which said if your 
managing director, then it's $155. And if you're a general manager, it's $140. And, you know, if you're a uh, general manager, then it's, um, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, the Babu decided. Yeah, that's uh, that's crazy. I mean, I wonder how many entrepreneurs, how many bright minds uh, lost how many years in that uh, in that time frame? Um, pre oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, this was one part of it, and the other part of it was also short-lived capital. So, you know, we, we were very short. We were very capital short. And, um, and then the third thing, which is that, uh, you know, because we were capital short, uh, yeah, talent counted for something. And, you know, uh, at the age of uh, 20, uh, let me be exact over here, 1981. Yeah. So at the age of 25, I left the Sunday after four years and um, set up this uh, business. But like I said, it was not my money. You know, uh, you, uh, you either came from a business family or you didn't. There was, there was no middle ground. And uh, so they paid me well. They gave me a lot of freedom. But uh, I had no equity. Um, uh, they they promised me a one percent uh, profit share, um, and I joke, which is that um, if uh, then was now or now was then, would own probably sixty percent of that uh, company when it went to IPO, right? But uh, because of the way capital availability has changed, but at that point in time. When the company went to IPO, I had zero percent equity in it. So that's how much times have changed. Yeah, and I think uh, in a good way, uh, the the coming of internet uh, also helped quite a bit. Um, even though we caught uh, caught up much later than let's say the US, but I think it was the right time. Your know, liberalization and the internet, and with this whole digitization, things have gotten uh, so much easier. Uh, Great. Uh, after those heavy topics, I want to move to something lighter. You told me that you are a mountain man and uh, <laughs> you have this love for the Himalayas. And uh, I, uh, I got to, uh, I got to listen to uh, a podcast where you said that you lived between ninety seven and probably the early two thousands without a phone, up in the mountains. Uh, what was that all about? Yeah, so uh, I'm in that very village right now, ah. uh, recording this, and um, yeah, so um, and you know, I'm not sure whether it's a great thing that I'm sitting over here and uh, have this kind of um, access because I often think about this that the distance between my life and the mountains, where I still spend a fair amount of time. And the city is uh, now very short. Um, the distance in terms of behavior and habits and so on and so forth. At that point in time, it was a completely different world. And uh, one of the reasons for that was a complete lack of uh, communication. Um, if I wanted to speak to anybody, really, I had to walk then. Um, uh, in those days, yeah, eight or ten minutes, because I was young and fast, uh, down from our cottage to the road, 
and um, then drive six kilometers on an unpaved road to the paved road and then drive on a narrow paved road for another 20 minutes and then meet the single lane paved road going up to Almora. And um, that was the nearest place where I could make a phone call. So it was it was a one hour um, travel to make a single phone call. And the nearest bank was an hour away and the nearest petrol pump. And um, um, so the only news I would get was when I went to Almora and the guy who owned the newsstand had instructions that uh, between this visit and the next one, just keep uh, economic times and the times of India, one copy every day. And often he wouldn't, but you know, I would typically come back with six or seven uh, newspapers. I would go every two weeks. So um, um, what was it like? It was, um, it was romantic in the extreme. It was incredibly beautiful um, because of its isolation. And um, I think we were both um, um, we were both very adventurous. Uh, we were so adventurous that we didn't feel like it was an adventure. And that's the extreme of adventure. When you're doing something which is so adventurous, but you don't feel like it. This is life. This is the life we've chosen. It's a gorgeous life. And uh, luckily, we also never had a mishap. Never had a major mishap. You know, uh, in those uh, uh, six years. Um, we had a couple of minor mishaps. Our dog was attacked by some kind of wild animal, probably a leopard. Because there were leopards, we could hear them. We did on one occasion. Attacked by a wild animal, had his throat ripped open, but we were actually able to save him. And uh, I think that's the that's the most we kept well for all of those six years. Never once uh, did uh, any of us require any major um, medical intervention, which would have been really tough because uh, you know, the nearest hospital was an hour and a half away and not a hospital that I would have liked to be in either then or now. Um, and uh, our son was born while we lived here. Um, we did go on medical advice to um, Delhi for the delivery, which was just as well because he had a few... Um, um, Complications. There were a few complications delivery and post delivery, but uh, nothing major. You need to ICU for about ten days, but after that, his life was absolutely normal. And um, so there was this thing in our time and in our family that uh, a child doesn't leave home for forty days. And um, but on the forty-second day, we got into our car and drove up to the mountains. And he lived, we lived here till he was uh, um, just five years old. So um, <laughs> he learned to read and write here in our front lawn in the, in the shadow of uh, Nanda Devi. And um, he grew up, he grew up in nature. And um, the one thing that was, <laughs> 
it's so funny, you know, the one thing that I was very determined was, despite the fact that we live in the mountains and there's no easy swimming to be had, he must learn how to swim. And uh, my wife said, you know, we're living in the middle of the village and uh, we try to, we don't try to disguise the fact that we're city people who have more money than they do, but a swimming pool is like really putting us apart from everybody else. And I could see that. So we built an irrigation tank. Um, and uh, yeah, and we didn't, you know, we didn't tile it or anything like that. We just built an irrigation tank. And I said, I just want him to grow up without, um, without a fear of water and being comfortable swimming. And so he learned to swim in that tank. And uh, now uh, loves to swim and uh, actually qualified for um, a diving license before he was 12 years old. So, you know, <clears throat> so that little sort of decision went a long, long way. And he actually got himself an advanced <laughs> open wire water diving certificate by the time he was 15. Um, and is much more proficient uh, diver than I am. So, you know, it was it was incredibly romantic. It also bred um, a degree of closeness between the three of us because it was just the three of us, you know? twenty four hours a day. I mean, we had we had friends in the and um, we did have some English speaking city bred friends in the broader area, you know, somebody was seven kilometers away and somebody was 40 kilometers away. But it's not like we were living in each other's homes. We would meet them from time to time, but six and a half days a week, that was our life, you know, in the middle of the forest in this stone and wood house, which was built by the local masons um, based on a drawing, which I did on a chart paper, so there was no architect, no engineer, no nothing. It was just um, this very simplistic design built with stone and wood, and that's where we lived. So um, things have changed a lot in this village. Quite a few people have, um, city people have set up second homes here and so on. And uh, uh, we still hark back to the old, and our house is still very, very much uh, in that sort of uh, idiom, it's all stone and uh, and uh, wood and uh, mud plaster. So what you see behind me, the walls, it's mud plaster. It's uh, it's not cement and uh, paint and so on. So uh, yeah, it was it was very good, very good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy how much I learn while talking to people. Um, and the reason why I say this is I had a conversation with um, Cal Fire, which is a California department to fight wildfires. And I was talking to a chief um, uh, from there. And um, I was asking him what are the, the worst cities to live uh, in terms of fire danger in California. And he was telling me a few names in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Uh, and and I asked him, why do people live up in the mountains? You know, why when it's so isolated with the fire danger? Uh, and he he's he told me that you know they just love it. Uh, they love the isolation. Uh, and for a city dweller like me, it 
it didn't make sense yesterday but uh, it's amazing how quickly things turn and i think when you when you sort of romantically talk about the mountains and your life in the mountains uh it makes sense to me now uh, but um thank you so much mohit uh, for for being on the show uh, we barely touched the surface um uh, i had so many things on my list uh, with jaipur literary festival you know startup and all of that but we could barely uh, touch the surface so uh, but but thank you so much for being on the show we may have a repeat uh, my pleasure bala and all the best with your uh, with your ongoing series of uh, podcasts yeah yeah thank you so much